0: Well, uh, I did accidentally make this uh, this public before we sorted out all the technical uh, difficulties, but we could always just retcon it and edit it at the beginning. Uh, later, we put out the episode.
1: Totally. So
0: uh, I am now joined by uh, Ryan Zickraff, uh who is a regular contributor to Jacobin Magazine and once upon a time was the co founder of a website called The Bellows.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> yes <laughs> I
0: was so the reason I bring up this little bit of, of ancient history is that uh, a announcement was made today about the formation of a new magazine called uh, Compact uh, that has a list of people associated with it and to be be fair, I would tend to assume that you know they they put out a kind of statement of the politics of the projects, and I would tend to assume that that's not like something that you know was signed off on by all like twenty people on this masthead you know I think that that's uh I think that this is you know this is probably best read as a statement of the uh, of the three people who are listed as founder and editor at the top of that masthead who are Sora Abumari, who is, I think best described as like a kind of medieval revivalist. Uh, he's, he's somebody who, uh, he's a, he's a right winger who did a debate with, uh, uh, with, um, shit. I am, uh, I am blanking on his name right now, but a much more mainstream uh conservative commentator uh david French David French is the guy, so uh-huh. he did a debate with David French a year or two ago. I remember um, that was basically about the fact that David French believes in you know some sort of bathwater liberal principles about religious pluralism and uh, and and uh you know, freedom and you know, separation of church and state. Uh, whereas uh, Amari believes, and he never quite spells out what he means by this, and reordering the public square around the highest good. Uh, and, uh, and there are a couple of other people among the sort of twenty people on the masthead who are very Amari-like. There's like Adrian Vermule, who famously wrote a uh, like a law review article late 2020 something like that uh where he he said that uh it's 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 time for conservatives to stop playing this game about you know originalism and um you know this this was like a convenient constitutional theory for a while but now we just should openly say that uh that that you know that that you know the constitution should be interpreted in the light of conservative social values and Patrick Deneen who's again very very Amari like there are a few of these people among the 20 people um there are also people who, you know... I mean, I'm a huge fan of Slavoj Žižek. He is, he is among the 20 people or so elsewhere on the masthead in a lesser role. Ashley Frowley is somebody who I think deserves some credit for, you know, for being a a, a leftist who uh, has has emphasized the importance of free speech. She's among the 20. But the three core people are Sora Bumari, Matthew Schmitz, who I'm not really that familiar with. Maybe you can tell me about him if you, if you know about him. Yeah. And that... <laughs> and then, uh, and then Edwin Aponte, who is yeah. the uh, who who was your co-founder at the Bellows?
2: Yeah.
0: So for for people who who aren't familiar with that, that history, um, you know, it, it might be it might be worth just briefly mentioning that just to just to kind of give anybody listening to this uh, an idea of of where this guy seems to be coming from.
2: Okay, sure. Well, I have to go back a little bit before that. So oh, this was, um, you know, sometime after Trump got elected. Um, I was in contact with uh, Angela Nagel and um, Liz Franzik from Chewanon. And we were coming up uh, with a, a website that looks maybe a little bit like Compact. Um, mm mm-hmm and then that so we've been we're planning for various reasons so uh someone said i I believe it was um, was a part of the class unity caucus in dsa they said uh, you should hook up with this edwin guy edwin aponte and at the time i had no idea who he was so we started talking and we decided to um, do this website that was basically the idea that I'd had um, with a few tweaks. Um, but it was called The Breach, and that was Edwin's idea. Uh, but it turns out there was a copyright problem with that. Um, you know, it's funny too, because right now people are uh, talking about the fact that the compact was some German. Nazi publication Mm -hmm. (laughs) so he's he's done this before where he's named something that already has a pre-existing name and it's a a little tricky anyway that's a little side note um so we launched in I want to say early 2020 Mm -hmm. um and we had uh columns by Sam Chris who is uh on Compact. And some of the same contributors uh Malcolm uh was a contributor and then um you know, and then he got uh he fired me
0: yeah from from a <laughs> thing that you co-founded so the, the legality of this I think is at best a little unclear but uh but but I think what I what I remember finding really striking at the time were his uh his stated reasons for quote unquote firing you or, you know, breaking off the uh the collaboration. Uh because the I mean the thing to emphasize here is that like the stuff that was on the original Bellows Masthead when you started it up, it had some you know, there there was some very good uh articles in it that that came out you know when it when it first started up and and the slogans that were kind of on the you know the website you know the masthead that uh, for for the bellows originally were about labor populism that was a phrase that was used there was one about uh class war not culture war which yeah. are obviously phrases that are very close to my heart but then <laughs> it seemed like when uh, when Aponte, you know, quote unquote, fired you, it was on the grounds that uh, you know, one uh, that the that you seemed too chummy with with my very good friend uh, the uh, late Michael Brooks, uh, who he didn't trust, and he had this kind of very funny thing where he said. Uh, I don't put him in the same category as, and then he listed off like podcasts that he liked, which, which, which were like quasi political. Like, I'm not even saying anything bad about these things, but it's like the, the things that are like sort of vaguely politics, adjacent podcasts, like red scare. And it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's odd. Right. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, and then, because too many people, you know, he thought the articles were being pitched wrong because too many people who had pronouns in their Twitter bios <laughs> were changing them. And it seems like, yeah. okay, wait a second. Like, this is like the end of uh, Animal Farm, you know, the, the four leagues good, two leagues better, you know, it's like class war, but not, not culture war. Actually, never mind. Let's just do culture war. Yeah. I
2: mean, the funny thing is, is part of the idea for me was to open up the audience a little bit to to have a greater reach I felt like some uh left liberal publications used a kind of language and used certain concepts that were alienating to sort of everyday readers and so my idea was to have a bigger tent but he evidently went uh, like a smaller tent that was you know like the cool kids table essentially like Uh, he he thought like the the left media was like the Marvel universe and he wanted to be strictly in the DC universe, which was basically, we hate whatever Marvel puts out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And now there is this, um, like, I, I feel like, okay, I could at least sort of understand. I mean, I think it's, you know, kind of incoherent and dumb, but I mean, I could sort of understand what the political project is there kind of, because, uh, you know, is this sort of quote unquote post left thing that, um, again, seems very focused on culture, seems like a very small tent, uh, is like what it actually means politically is, you know, ambiguous, I think, um, but like I at least understand the sort of niche of people, you know, who they're they're going for. Here it seems like just sort of a not not really exactly a big tent or a small tent, but just a very odd cross section of tents. Like, well, and
2: and and maybe we should talk about see the origins of that term "post left."
0: Yeah, um, please.
2: So you know when he when he uh, he fired me, which was all of a sudden changing all my passwords and, you know, locking me out of the website. Um, I got on the phone with him shortly after and I was like, you know, what's going on? And, you know, what we talked about is that my political project hadn't changed. I wanted a kind of left that was, I don't know, reflected in someone like, um, uh, I guess someone like Zizek Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was going more towards this American conservative paleo right thing. And he admitted that he was uh, changing his politics, that this time, you know, the around 2020, it was like post Bernie that, you know, that that politics had changed so much that he was changing and he called what his dissident group was post left which mm-hmm. essentially means anti-left, like whatever uh, leftists and left liberals are doing, they were kind of wanting to do the opposite. And that just so happened to coincide with whatever the new right was doing. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of, uh, I suspected once this happened, when he fired me that he would go more towards that American conservative um type of publication and that's essentially what I see that he's done, with again, some good writers in there. I, I don't I don't want to condemn the project either as as a whole. Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean again, I, I think that like, out of the twenty people or whatever on the best head, I mean there are definitely you know there are definitely people that I like and, you know, and, and I who I think have much better politics than, than probably the sort of core group uh, of of this have and there are people that I'm ambivalent about and you know whatever right I mean that's not the point
1: mm-hmm. but uh,
0: what I what I find interesting about this is one um, that it, it is it's something that in some way obviously in some sort of weird cultural beefs kind of way makes sense to the sort of core people involved and then, you know, I could also see like other people who are sort of elsewhere down the masthead. It might be like, Hey, we're starting this magazine. Here are some things that you might want to write, you know, do, you know, if we, you know, give you a title as one of the 15 people who's a contributing editor here, you know, do you want to like write something, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever and that's, you know, no shade on anybody for saying yes to that. That's fine. You know, but like, um, but that. The idea – like it would be one thing if you had, uh, you know, Edward Aponte and Sora Bramari and uh, go further down the lead masthead. you know. You had, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Slavoj Žižek and they were going to do this magazine that was just a sort of no particular editorial line magazine just to sort of host – like debates and and contributions from interesting people around the spectrum or whatever, right? Like that that would make perfect sense to me. I'd, I'd be cool with that. But what I find interesting and sort of confusing about this, actually writing something sort of for uh, for Jack, I that's mean, kind of about this, is that it's like they seem to be the sort of core group. Like seems to be suggested that they do have some sort of political project and And then, I guess to me then the questions are one what what would that be, and two, is it one that anybody would want you know that we want to touch with the ten foot pole? because it just seems like okay, like if you're Glenn Greenwald, what do you care about more than anything else civil liberties, personal freedom, free speech, you know surveillance state wars, and if you're Patrick Deneen. Right. You know, what do you what do you care about? Basically having as little personal freedom as at all possible because you kind of want to live in a Catholic theocracy. And, you know, it's just not obvious to me what the coherent political project is there at all. Well, yeah.
2: uh, I look at the note from the founders and they talk about, you know, this key phrase in here. Uh, Our editorial choices are shaped by our desire for a strong social democratic state that defends community, local and national, familial and religious against a libertine left and a libertarian right. Okay, but like, what does that mean, the strong uh, social democratic (laughs) state? I mean, that I mean, so that sentence um, on its own doesn't sound bad, but sure, if you you read uh, a lot of the introduction articles, there is no talk about what that might look like or what. Uh, what kind of policies, you know, is there anything for me- about Medicare for all? Um, no, it's a lot of the same kind of anti-woke um, kind of writing that you'll find uh, in a lot of conservative magazines. It's better written than a lot of those, but <laughs> a lot of it falls along those lines.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I, I see... Like a Nina Power thing that's, um, uh, was it? it's like in defense of patriarchy? Uh, yeah, what uh, a
2: headline. Oh man, that was just, uh, asking, that was like trolling the libs. I mean, they certainly came out against it on Twitter today, but wow, what a headline.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's not even, uh, <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because right? it, it's not even like look you could do something that would like maybe be somewhat in the neighborhood of this that you know you'd be making like some kind of quasi like left point that you'd say like um, you know I don't know we're not living in a patriarchy that's not the problem with American society and, and you talk about how the actual like family structures were You know we're different, and and how you know everybody's so economically precarious that you know you can't have 1950s you know patriarchal families or whatever. And then ideally you'd you'd say, but that's also we'd also don't want to regress to that, right? You know that's not a that's not a you know that's not a positive ideal. But maybe we do want a society where you know where people could uh, you know people could kind of decide for themselves you know, what sort of arrangements make sense to them without, you know, without a lot of economic pressure. And I think something like that might be defensible. But I mean, I think this is really, um, like, like this is really just kind of nutty, like, because it's not, you know, the reason, like, it's one thing to reject sort of culture war liberalism because you want to focus on um, on bread and butter issues instead of sort of fighting about cultural sensibilities all the time. You know, I, I you know, and that's that's certainly um, you know that's certainly something I'm a defender of and think is consistent with some basic socially progressive commitments that you know you have to have to have a you know morally defensible political program. But this is the opposite of that, almost right? I mean, this is this is rejecting culture war liberalism. I mean, really, it just seems like for the sake of culture war conservatism, <laughs> and, and, and
1: yeah, yeah, I. I,
2: I, I I think, like, with that article, you know, like, um, you know, it, it makes some uh, decent points at times. And uh, I agree that not all masculinity is toxic. And of sure. course, you don't want to go that far. But um, it does this thing where a lot of conservatives go it, 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 in that it tries to um, imagine some – some time in the past where uh, the American family, the American man was great. And uh, some liberalism tainted it. And now we have to go back to what was, but it's kind of a fantasy version. So it's not clear what exactly. I mean, there's not a whole lot of specifics about what exactly she's talking about as far as the patriarchy, but uh, a lot of it just seems I'm against whatever the liberals are doing
0: no for sure i and i mean i guess I guess the two points I want to make about this before we get to calls are one um, you know defending like the fact that you you say like one of the things you want to defend these communities against are the libertine left right like is that really your objection to the left the libertines that they uh, that like that what like people like are are sleeping around and smoking pot too much like uh which you know, or if that's not what that means, I want to know what it does mean. You know, and uh, and that's that just that just seems like such a such a weird thing to to find objectionable. Uh, I mean, what do you what do you care? And um, and certainly I'm drinking
2: and, a beer right now, so that's pretty libertine of me.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm actually still finishing my coffee from this morning, <laughs> but I'll pour some whiskey when I'm done. But um, but like also, you know, it, it just seems like I don't know. I think like people should be as libertine or as unlibertine as you know, they want to be, but like, uh, and, and certainly talking about defending religious communities from that, it's like, I, that sounds ominous. I want to know a lot more details, but that also, at the end of this article, the, the patriarchy article, you know, as you say, look, I don't, you know, I am totally on board with saying, you know, no all masculinity is toxic, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all fine with me, but Quote, this is the last paragraph, By dismantling patriarchy, we have lost them things of value, the protective father, the responsible man, the paternalistic attitude that exhibits care and compassion rather than simply placing constraints on freedom. This has resulted in a horizontal, competitive society that suits consumer capitalism very well, one in which there is no power outside the market and state. Those who oppose social injustice should think twice before denouncing patriarchy. And it just seems like putting aside the question of like whether the word patriarchy usefully captures like the sort of source and nature of the kinds of gender inequalities that we have in contemporary corporate capitalist society. And I think there's lots of room to argue about that. Like it just seems like the strategy here is to tell people that sort of social progress and, uh, and and having a more egalitarian idea about gender, and, you know, and, and moving away from sort of traditional patriarchal, you know, culturals is a package deal with like late capitalist, you know, neoliberal precarity, and that seems like a horrible message if you actually wanted, which I, you know, I would assume, uh, you know, I assume power does not, you know, but like if you want, if the if the thing that you actually wanted was to mobilize people for a better economic program to oppose late capitalist neoliberal precarity, because look, we live in an incredibly socially liberal country, like in terms of popular attitudes. Like, I, I mean, if, if you actually look at uh, at polling data, I mean, the like in many ways, Americans are way more socially liberal than you know people in many European countries, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of people are, are very happy about social progress that's happened in the last several yeah. decades and telling people that if you, you know, that that like this, our objection to this is all bound up in our objection to uh, to neoliberal economics. And if you want to reject neoliberal economics, you know, you've got to reject this. I mean, it just doesn't seem like a good sales pitch.
2: Well, and – um. The culprit is seen as mostly like liberals and the left that mm-hmm. have have done this. When you know you look at uh, what has destroyed family and community, a lot of it is of uh, uh, totally free market economics, which you know absorbed women in, into the uh, into the workplace and then uh, you know deprived yeah. people of being able to live on on one income. Like that is uh, you know it, that is things that the right support.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And, I mean, this is why, right, I mean, like, this is the point I've been trying to make for the last four years about why, like, Jordan Peterson is so incoherent when he talks endlessly about the sort of loss of family and tradition and all that stuff, and also, you know, also celebrates free market capitalism. And, you know, that critique, I guess, doesn't apply here, because they reject both. But, like, also... um but also, it's okay. One, I think the rejection of both is kind of rhetorical and meaningless because, um, I, I mean, I just don't think you can have culturally conservative social democracy, certainly not in the United States. I, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see what the game plan is for that at, at all. I mean, like, you know, we don't have the reason we don't have social democracy in America is not because nobody's thought of it, you know, it's, it's because of it resistance from capital and that could only be overcome by an organized working class, which is certainly not something that you could do from within a, you know, conservative political party. But also it's.
2: Is there an example of a, a social democratic, right? Like I'm trying to even grasp an like an example from the rest of the world or world history. Like what does that even look like?
0: I mean, not really. Like it seems like, I mean, is it one thing to say that there are countries, you know, times and places where the overall shape of that culture is much more conservative? And so, you know, if you're not grading on a curve, right, if you're, like, grading absolutely, like, the all parts of the political spectrum in that country look way more culturally conservative uh, than, uh, you know, the, the United States, including maybe, like, you know, successful social democratic candidates or whatever. Like, that's fine, Right. But like saying that, like, socially conservative by the standards of the society. Right. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, not really. Like you have, you know, you have like Bismarck doing some sort of like watered down semi-social democratic thing to try to take away, take the wind out of the sails of the real thing. You know, but like other than examples like that, I don't really think you do. And and it just seems like. so that's one objection that like, I just don't think it's a serious combination that could really happen. And then the other objections I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it to, right. I mean, like, you know, I don't like endless culture war. I don't, uh, you know, I, I think there's plenty of sort of excesses and, and, and sort of grotesqueries of, you know, contemporary performative wokeness that I have lots and lots of problems with. I don't like censoriousness, et cetera, et cetera. But like, also basically like I, you know, I do think that like it's important to have robust anti-discrimination laws and sort of uh pl- pluralism and separation of church and state and you know you should let trans people take a shit in North Carolina in peace you know like like all of that seems like if you don't agree with all of that I don't understand I don't understand how you could not agree with all of that given the sort of basic egalitarian impulses that would lead you to be a socialist in the first place. You know, and, and it just seems like okay, it's one thing to say the real cause of like family breakdown isn't anything that's like really cultural at all. It's it's the you know, increasing economic precarity. But then it's another thing to say it's like what we want is to defend religious communities against the liberty and left, you know, so we can like go back to leave it to Beaver instead. It seems like what you should say is maybe what you want is a society where people are free from economic pressure to, you know, so they can, they can live their lives how they want to live them. You know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to have leave it to beaver, go nuts. If you want to, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you want to drop acid and, you know, hang out at clubs all night, do that. You know I mean? It's, it's none of my business. Well, when, you know, um, a leftist
2: who has been described as a conservative uh, who I think is pretty good was uh, the folk singer Pete Seeger.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know uh he had this new york times um, interview back in the 90s where he said oh i'm more conservative than barry goldwater but <laughs> he wanted to turn the clock back to when there was no income tax i want to turn the clock back to when people lived in small villages and took care of each other i mean that is a good <laughs> kind of uh like socialist conservatism where you like you know uh, be nice to your mom like you know, be a good citizen. You know, that's like a good, I want to take care of the environment. That's a good kind of like old school conservatism. But, you know, Pete Seeger was definitely from the old labor left.
0: Right. And again, this is
2: not this project.
0: No, it sure doesn't seem like it. Right. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe I haven't, I haven't seen everything yet. Maybe there's something somewhere on this website where, you know, somebody's talking about, uh, medicare for all or unionizing starbucks but i'm not i'm not holding my breath right that doesn't seem to be the uh, the emphasis okay yeah, i'm going oh sorry what are you going to say oh i mean the
2: funny thing is is when i was um commissioning articles in the bellows i tried to do some labor stuff i interviewed um we interviewed a uh um uh, a worker that was going on strike and Edwin did not care for that. And then, you know, after he fired me, you ought to notice that he hasn't written much about this labor populism he claims to uh, to care about. And it's just interesting that he, you know, this New York Times piece that came out today, he was considered this, like, Marxist. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> his uh, his, mar- his brand of Marxism is interesting.
0: Yeah, to, just, to say the least. I mean, I think that the, um, like, Again, you know, they, I mean, they're, they have the labor populism line in the New York Times piece because they're quoting the original Bellows tagline, labor populism for the future, which, by the way, sounds good to me, right? I mean, I I love that, right? I mean, like, I I think if, I think if they're not actually going to use that slogan, the rest of us should take it back up, you know, but um, I would, I would love labor populism, but that doesn't seem to be what this is, uh, what this is about.
3: No, I have have a feeling their,
2: their new, their version of labor populism was supporting the Canadian truckers.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You
0: know. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's take. Uh, so let's let's see if we can take some of these calls uh, before we go. So we have a few calls waiting. Sure. All
3: right.
0: Armchair, are you with us?
4: Hey there. Yeah, I'm with you. Can you hear me?
0: Yep. What's on your mind? Okay.
4: Yeah, um, I just wanted to share, um, since you just brought up the the fact that there aren't many, um, examples of, um, countries or places where you have simultaneously a strong, uh, sort of socialist vision for the economic policy, but at the mm-hmm. same and also, you know, the place is democratic and at the same time, a conservative kind of cultural agenda, um, mm. And I think you you have some. Uh, certainly, I am uh, aware of at least one example pretty intimately. Okay. Uh, Russia, I think, is a fairly good example of a country which, I mean, by no means fully uh, socially democratic, of course, but I believe much more um, much more closer to being a social, at least uh, socialist in economic policy. Than, let's say, you know, the United States, uh, because of its you know, well, large I mean, amount of. No, sorry, I, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. I mean, everywhere. You know, it's closer to being uh, social democratic than the United States. I mean, you know, and, right. there, there are respects in which, you know, you could say that about Mexico or, you know, whatever. But, like, I have. I would just point out with Russia, though, that, I mean, I, I guess I just make two points about Russia, uh, you know, then I throw it back to you or to. Uh, uh, or to but but uh, one is that historically, look at the time when Russia took its most left wing economic lurch, which is one thousand nine hundred and seventeen uh, they were also taking a massive lurch uh, to towards you know that libertine left and uh, you know in in terms of of cultural permissiveness i mean that the when the Bolshevik revolution happened, or i mean some of this was the February Revolution, but the Bolsheviks kept it like they legalized abortion. Uh, they legalized no fault divorce, which had never been legal in Russia before. They legalized homosexuality, and some of that stuff was undone by Stalin in the 30s. You know, but I mean, like, I think it is pretty telling that it all came about then. And even if we're talking about you know like Putinism now, which okay, I mean, I, I could certainly buy that there are respects in which it's more uh, social democratic than uh, than what we have in the the United States. But I mean, one. That's something that consolidated itself, you know, very non-coincidentally, the restoration of capitalism in Russia with hand in glove, with the restoration of the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, which is the social base of Putinism, And, um, and I mean, like Russia today, okay, are there respects in which it's more social democratic than the United States? I'm sure there are, but like, also, come on, I mean, like this is, uh, Not for nothing do they call them oligarchs. I mean, this is certainly a vastly less economically egalitarian society than lots of ones in Europe that are, you know, that like that are compared to Russia, just just uh, just orgies of, uh, you know, libertine leftism.
4: Right. No, I agree. I, I mean, I certainly like I, I don't want the, the, the social democracy uh, of any country to look like the social democracy or or rather the, the whatever the model that is uh, operating in Russia. Of course, like you're right, like the, the oligarchy is pernicious and uh, it's not by any means a, a very good system. But I think like I guess my point was just uh, to push back a little bit on this uh, um, sort of uh, hypothesis that you made that those two things necessarily like you don't have examples that are that resemble you know a, a socialist or okay again not a socialist but much more of a um, much uh, a model that much that, that where the government is involved much more in, in in the economy than the united states and at the same time being very conservative uh culturally uh i just think even even in the example that you Brought up like with Stalinism, uh, you know, Stalin moving away from uh, from some of the from from some of the liberties that were given um, after the revolution, uh, but he kept the the economic um, Mm -hmm. the economic system intact, right? So you had the system where it basically became much more conservative, but at the same time, economically it stayed. Largely the same as far as I understand. And so. Well,
0: yeah. sure. I mean, I, mean, I mean, that's certainly possible, right? I mean, that you can have economic gains that are won and those can be retained at the same time that there's a culturally conservative turn. I certainly wouldn't mean to imply that there's anything impossible about that. I also think, and I mean, maybe this goes a little bit more broadly to what you're saying about Russia, you know, today, maybe, that I think in some like developing countries and some, you know, very unstable post-soviet kleptocracies that uh where you have like very weak ruling classes there's probably a lot more room for like what marxists would call you know bonapartism you know they having like strong leaders who sort of manage to impose a kind of um you know a kind of social peace uh that you know that that has that does involve like making some some big economic concessions to you know, poor working people for the, the, you know, the sake of stability and and all that stuff and kind of making whatever local ruling class there is swallow it. I think there is some room for that. But I think that in terms of the kind of social democracy and, you know, also, you know, sure, if you have non-democratic systems, then whoever's in charge might just have whatever eccentric combination of preferences and manage to to impose that on the population, right? If you're Ed Verhoxa, then like, you know, Whatever, whatever weird impulses you have, like you have a remarkable amount of, of you know, ability to just impose on the population. But like, I think that if you're talking about social democracy, not just as a sort of phrase that means like any sort of like welfare state programs or any sort of welfare state programs that go beyond what we have in the United States, but like the idea that you're talking about something that like emerges from a from a workers' movement, you know, in, in ways that. You know, I think I think it would have to, right? You know, certainly if we're going to come out of the United States, because it just seems like the in, the entrenched interests that oppose it are so entrenched, right? You need some kind of counterbalance to that. Uh, I don't know that you have a lot of examples. I mean, maybe there are some, right? You know, maybe I'm just not being creative enough. You know, like I'm not thinking of everything in the moment, but like I don't know that you have a lot of examples of cases where you simultaneously have that kind of like sharp left turn from below on economics. And that goes hand in hand with like sort of uh, imposing more socially conservative standards than what you already had. I mean, even something like AMLO in Mexico, which is like very far from, you know, like I, I, I think there's some very good criticisms of that. And it's, it's like a kind of a weird hybrid combination of things and whatever, but like, even there, I mean, right? Is it there? Or like the, you know, Castillo and Peru, like, I mean, like, sure, you have countries that are more socially conservative than the United States. And so the whole spectrum is going to reflect that. But also, relative to the spectrum, it seems, you know, like even those governments are at least relatively socially liberal, like, again, grading on a curve for those societies
2: yeah and i'd be interested to uh know you know the brand uh, of uh putin's conservatism like what exactly uh he's being conservative about because sometimes um from my understanding it sometimes boils down to like he hates gay people and you know uh i guess is kind of orthodox christian perhaps but um I mean, I think, Ben, you made a good point earlier about uh, after the Russian Revolution that they completely changed not only like economics and government, but also culture and architecture and art. It was like we're going to create a new society. And so nothing was conserved (laughs) almost, you know, they completely remade Russia. So what exactly is the Putin... Project. What what kind of conservatism
4: is that, really? Well, I think I mean, just from my perspective, like uh, I I mean, gay rights is one one uh, glaring example of just the lack of any kind of uh, any kind of respect uh, for for uh, uh, minorities. Uh, But -hmm. also, you have you have you know a lot of on the Democratic side, you know, have a lot of repressions of you know freedom of speech. Um, you have repressions of even labor movements. Um, so it's very sort of I guess you're right, like it's not really a country where uh, organized labor um, and uh, you know bottom up leftism is really reigning. It's more of a uh, government top-down imposed uh, kind of order where it also happens to be very uh, very conservative as well yeah fair
0: enough. all right well, uh thank you for the call uh i want I want to see if I could move through these and, and get as many as possible uh before we uh, we finish up. Uh, we have a, a regular here uh Kusho. What's
5: on your mind? Hey, good afternoon, Ben. I'm so flattered to be a regular here. Thank you so much for always being so warm and inviting. Well, thank you absolutely. So I think one thing that armchair raised, which I think is very important and significant to analyze as a part of the left project is that period when he was uh, referencing like russia i take it he meant like the early years of the soviet union which you also mentioned the 1917 1918 years like uh early on during the russian civil war and after shortly after when the new economic policy of lenin was implemented Mm -hmm. and i think if i'm not mistaken armchair was saying that stong continued like he said that The economic policy was maintained. There were regressions that you, you were the one who brought it up. There were regressions when it came to uh, human rights in the sense of like uh, abortions and divorces. I don't know if the divorces were or whatnot, but Stalin definitely. No, I think,
0: I think that is true. I think, I think Stalin made made it harder to get a
5: divorce in the Soviet Union too. Okay. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. But that the economic policy didn't change. But I do think that's something important to correct because if I'm not mistaken, yes. State capitalism was maintained, and that was fundamental to Lenin's new economic policy. Of course, that was in response to major events such as the Kronstadt Rebellion, which I think was one of the greatest um, failures of Lenin and Trotsky to live up to their stated principles, crushing the sailors who really right. want to implement the Soviet councils, which was promised to reduce the bureaucracy of the Bolsheviks and to implement worker council left wing um, you know, principles. But I think the new economic policy was abandoned by Stalin in 1928, the period of the Great Break or the Great Turn, it's sometimes referred to from 1928 to 1929. That's not to say that the nationalization, the collectivization, it was moved away. But there, I think there were changes that Stalin made from um, Lenin. And that is something that I noticed when Armchair raised it. it didn't, I don't know if one could say he kept it exactly as Lenin wanted it. Because there was the issue of the, the peasants who hoarded their grains, and that was a very serious matter because there were low prices internationally and domestically for their produce, and it was a, something that was catastrophic for all of Russia and Soviet Union during Lenin's time and Stalin's time. Uh, I think there's a video of uh, Bertrand Russell mm-hmm. on YouTube, and he's talking about how he visits Stalin, I think in 1920 he's talking about it. He's not... The video is not from him in 1920. He's talking about his time in 1920. And he talks about, I I spoke to Lenin for about an hour and I asked him, you said you were going to put in socialism. But to me, it looks like you're putting in peasant proprietorship. And Lenin Uh, And Russell imitates Lenin's laugh and Lenin in that laugh supposedly goes, oh, well, what I did is I got the poor peasants angry at the rich peasants and hanged and had the rich peasants hanged, which it's true. I mean, if you look at Lenin's hanging order, he says explicitly to hang no less, no fewer than 100 kulaks or peasants. So I think that's one big element of the Russian left wing project, whatever came from it, that needs to be analyzed. And Lenin's Testament showed that these are two completely different figures. And, and I'll end on this. I'd love to know your reflections. In Lenin's Testament, he says, quote, Stalin is too coarse and this defect, although quite tolerable in our midst. Dealing with us communists becomes intolerable in the secretary general. That is why I suggest that the comrades think about a way of removing Stalin from that post and appointing another man in his steed, or stead, I'm not sure, who in all the respects differs from Comrade Stalin having only one advantage, namely that of being more tolerant, more loyal, more polite, and more considerate to the comrades, less capricious, etc. This circumstance may, be, may appear to be a negligible detail, but I think that from the standpoint of safeguards against the split and from the standpoint of what I wrote about above about the relationship between Stalin and Trotsky, it is not a minor detail, but it is a detail which can, have, which can assume decisive importance, end quote. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Ben and Ryan. All right. Thank
0: you so much, Kusha. Uh, so before throwing to Ryan, I would just say that, I mean, I think... It is certainly true that there were big economic there were big economic changes uh when when Stalin took over at the end of the twenties but you know I think that's at a slightly right angle to the original topic from my perspective about um you know about culture and the relationship between culture and economics because you know those economic changes were you know kind of in a direction of of uh you know consult like sort of undoing. You know some of the compromises with capitalism that Lenin had to have at the end of the Civil War, and you know they weren't really in the direction of restoring capitalism. So even though there are changes, it's not clear. You know, I, I mean, I, I do get what I do get what Armchair was saying about how those are changes that you know still sort of retained the. Sort of, you know, I mean, if you think they're socialist and, you know, leftists will argue about this interminably, like how to how to think about whatever existed in the Soviet Union. Is that a a kind of socialism, just not the kind we want or is it something else or whatever? But like whatever you want to call the system of the Soviet Union in a fundamental way that was that was retained at the same time that there were these culturally conservative changes. Uh, Ryan, do you have any thoughts? Um, Not really.
2: I, I got to admit that uh, I need to bone up a little bit on the, that period. Funny enough, I took Russian in college and um, can remember about two words. And, uh, you know, so uh, I think you did a good job. I, I, I don't really have much... Uh, so yeah, that.
0: I mean, I mean, you don't need to bone up. I think American leftists have historically spent way too much time thinking about the uh, Russian Revolution and way too little about the class struggle in their own country. But, uh, but fair enough. Okay. No, uh, I, I
2: actually uh, am um, trying to bone up a little bit. I be, I picked up a used copy of Perestroika by Gorbachev and started oh, reading wow. it.
0: So that's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. actually I actually love to hear about that sometime, but. Um, Okay, uh, Joshua, are you with us?
1: You hear me? Yep. All right, so first of all, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna be nice to Kusha. I hear him on a lot of these calls. Um, and I think that we do have to be nice to tankies. We all want worker cooperatives. Um, and I'm gonna be nice to Armchair too. We None of us want imperialism. None of us want capitalism. None of us want kleptocracies. None of us want patriarchy and we want to get rid of inequality, right? And, you know, so that all crosses it? borders via yeah. very, yeah, via ultra wealthy billionaires' monies, right? It does, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So, uh, the thing I want you guys to weigh on, and uh, if I hadn't had those other two callers, I probably would have started with this, was looking at the First Amendment and elected officials that are potentially part of Oathkeeper organizations. For instance, David Eastman, the Alaska rep, who is a member of the Oath Keepers, was at January 6th. Maybe he wasn't in the room, but he's up for recall right now, potentially, or at least yeah. censure, but he's not gonna be coming up for re reelection until 2024 in Alaska. And that seems too long before we really address these issues in our politics. And I want you to think about this in the terms of cancel culture and culture war, because I mean, what is free speech? All right.
0: um, so uh, Ryan, do you, uh, do you have any thoughts about that one?
2: Well, well yeah, so wait, the question is, what is free speech or it is about this particular issue with this uh so Alaska. so so um,
0: yeah so so why don't we why don't we do one at a time uh and and I sh- I should probably should have kept the caller on I, I I'm just trying to like get through all this to make sure I I've, I've I've addressed all the calls before we before we end in a few minutes but uh but but maybe like okay oh, yeah, the question as i heard it i hope this is not mangling what the caller was getting at but the question as i heard it was one, uh what do we think about uh about the these like elected representatives who are maybe members of the oath keepers or you know were president January sixth, and sort of how much should we worry about that and then uh and then, I think there was something broader about free speech being being raised there, which I guess. Like could I mean in a way you know could go back to what you and I talked about last time, which was about the sort of um, you know what I think we would probably kind of both see as sort of liberal paranoia about insurrectionism and 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 the idea that that is uh, you know that that concern should maybe trump our our interest in free speech. I again I should not have cut off the collar before we clarified that that is that is my bad, but that's that's what I that's what I got out of the question.
3: Well,
2: um, I'm not sure about this specific uh, example of the uh, Alaska. Was it a senator, representative?
0: I, I believe it was a senator.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like that is maybe a case by case basis. Um, you know, I, I haven't I haven't read about this. I don't know what he did, but uh, you know, I think it depends on how involved he was in this oath keeper. What you know what. Um, what he had to do with this particular, um, I guess this was about uh, the, you know, was he actually there on January 6th? I don't know. But
0: um, I mean, I I guess, I, I, I guess from my perspective, I would just say, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what the mechanism is. I mean, if there's some sort of way of, of doing a, a recall vote than than whatever. I mean, like if, if if this is, you know, some sort of you know, weird right wing sociopath and you can you can recall him and replace it with somebody who wouldn't be as bad, then then I'm all for it, right? If uh you know, I, I am much leerier about the sort of calls that were being made, uh, in kind of the immediate aftermath of January sixth, including from some people in the squad, for like applying you know whichever one of this post-civil war amendments it is that you know has says that you know people who you know were involved in you know insurrections you know can't can't serve in uh, in in federal elected office and they could be removed that way i'm not crazy about the precedent there and and i'd also say I, i i guess what i'd also always want to point people to i mean it's kind of like you know I mean, this is, like, if my friend Daniel Bessner were here, I know this is the question he would ask, which is, which, okay, all of these people obviously are are our political enemies, right, goes without saying, but which enemies should you be most worried about and why, right? Like, I, I think that's, like, a big question kind of hovering in the background of a lot of this stuff, and should you... Like, should you be most worried about um or should you be worried enough to want to take extraordinary measures to remove or whatever people who are like sort of right wing weirdos who you know might be a member of an organization like the Oath Keepers who maybe had been present on January sixth like and whatever kind of particular threat to democratic institutions might be posed by those people. Or do you basically think that America's weird half-democratic institutions are actually pretty safe, and what you should be most worried about is just, like, neoliberalism, right? And and, I mean, I guess the way I I put the question kind of shows the cards in terms of how I'd answer.
2: Well, I'd also say, you know, as much uh, shit as I talked about Edwin, his editorial uh, in Compact about uh, free speech is actually pretty good.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, I believe that there is a threat um, by left liberals and the right. It's not necessarily the um, the government's intrusion. It's like you know, it tends to be like a social pressure thing. Um, but there is, you know, we are in a time where uh, free speech is tested, and it is you know upsetting when we have the ACLU. And I I heard the um, the old head of the ACLU come on Bill Maher and talk about how the ACLU is not the old ACLU. And, right. um, and I do think that we have a free speech problem. And that's something that when I started the bellows um, is a topic that I wanted to, to focus on. Um, but yeah, I think it's as much on the right it is as it is on the left, you know, a lot of times it's about power. It's about wrestling for power and um, some of the best, uh, one of the best tactics is to censor your opponent, and I, th- I think both sides are guilty of that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean i I mean I think it's something that should emphasize a lot more. I mean, I I wrote uh, a couple things for the uh, the Daily Beast of all publications about this. Uh, one of them was about the CRT laws, and one of them was about uh, the calls for Spotify to censor Joe Rogan. And uh, you know, in my view, is is that you know, free speech is incredibly important and the left should be vigilant about it. That the left should actually be endorsing the most maximalist, the most um, you know, capacious uh accounts of what, what free speech is, what kinds of free speech we should worry about instead of retreating into these like kind of narrow libertarian it only counts if the government does it uh ones because I mean, both both in principle and str- for in principle reasons and for strategic reasons. That you know, I mean, I think the strategic reason is pretty obvious. That like, you know, in like the Spotify example, right? I mean, if if Spotify had existed in two thousand and two and had uh, and had rules about you know prohibited disinformation, you know, who who would have been more likely to be censored as a result of those rules? You know, people who uh, agreed with the New York Times and agreed with the Bush administration that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or people who. Thought that the Bush administration was conspiring to lie to the public. I mean, the question kind of answers itself, and I think it's one. And I think that's an answer that generalizes. I mean, I think in general, I mean, these institutions aren't controlled by our friends, and there's a pretty straightforward strategic reason for uh, for leftists to, to you know, to be very wary and hostile about any attempt to weaken free speech norms on any of these platforms. And but there's also an in principle reason that I think goes even to some of the social pressure stuff, which is like. If you see socialism as meaning not you know not just um, as meaning not just like state ownership, but economic democracy, you know, like if you if you agree with like C.L.R. James, you know, every cook can govern, you know, and you see your politics is based around that, then I don't see that. Seems to me like it's pretty radically in conflict with this kind of like hall monitorish sort of human resources department liberalism that's all about trying to like shut down dangerous speech so it doesn't influence people you know that like nobody's infected by it you know because it's like okay do you do you actually believe that every cook can govern or are you in fact so distrustful of ordinary people's ability to to you know to hear everyone and everything and make up their own minds that you know, you want to make sure that they don't they don't have access to the the right points of view. And I mean it it seems like if you're pro-de-platforming and pro censorship and all that stuff, it seems like the second one to me. And and I think it's a I think it's a huge mistake. Again, I, I don't think it fits with socialist principles. I don't I think it's hugely counterproductive strategically. And and I think it's fine to say that actually the worst threats to speech, free speech right now are coming from the right. I actually think that's correct. I think they are, but whatever. I mean, I think we should. I think we should be attentive to all of the threats to uh, to to free speech right now. I mean, I I you know I think that, and I actually think it's a huge strategic error that like when it comes to something like the CRT laws, that the so much of the pushback is about like calling people who support them racists, uh, which you know may be true in many cases, but I mean I don't I don't think is that politically effective a thing to focus on uh instead of uh instead of focusing on it as a as like a principled defense of free speech which is i think the right way to fight it
2: and and, you know as much as i'm skeptical of compact and uh at least partially the project um i uh i am excited that it exists in certain way because i want to read some of these writers and i think that um you know, if we're serious about having a um, free exchange of ideas, that we should, uh, you know, foster a culture of openness of conversation. And, you know, we can look at this uh, site on its own merits, and we can, you know, we don't have to, to condemn it. Like, you know, there's been a lot of liberals on Twitter today that have just been like, oh, this thing is uh, fascist," mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that want to deplatform it, but I am not that way at all. You know, we should we should judge the writers and their ideas based on their own manners.
0: Yeah. I mean which which I think is what we've been doing. I mean that they have that like this this, you know, this note to, to readers saying that uh you know, saying that what they want is uh is right wing social traditionalist, you know, social democracy. I mean, I think that deserves to be ripped up because I think it's a, I think it's a dumb thing to say you know but i mean that doesn't mean that i think that um doesn't mean that i think that the website shouldn't exist and it it certainly doesn't mean that i i'm gonna like go around accusing every person who has anything to do with it of being a fascist both because i i do like some of those writers and, and i just don't think that would be true of them and in general i think that's a bad way to approach this stuff i think you can like without crazy hyperbole right you know and uh I suppose somebody could agree, accuse me of hyperbole because of, of what I said about Amari and Vermeule and Dinian earlier. But I mean, check these guys out. Uh, but um, but without crazy hyperbole, I mean, I think you could just like look at the ideas they express on their merits, and and if they say something good, then great. But if they say something ridiculous like that that note that you quoted earlier, the editorial note, then then I think they should be that should be torn apart on its merits. All right. Um... We have sorry. Uh, all right, so we have one. Uh, we have one more caller, If you've got a minute, uh, Scott, are you with us? Yep. All
3: right, what's up your mind, Scott? I, I think my questions are going to be. I'm sorry. What's that? Oh, uh, I think my questions are going to be quick. I'll, I'll let you guys go pretty quickly. Um, sure. Go for it. And there, it's about compact because I wasn't, I wasn't even aware of it until fifteen minutes before the show started when I saw what it was going to be about. So I, I don't really. The only writers I see that I'm familiar with are like Michael Tracy, Brent Glenn, and DJ. Uh, yeah, and it seems like yeah. they're kind of coasting on those names as opposed to their all of this or whatever. But. Uh, my question is kind of who is this magazine like trying to like what audience are they trying to serve? I understand current affairs and Jacobin both have audiences that don't really get their voice activated in the mainstream media. So I wondered if Ryan had any insight into like that question.
0: Yeah,
2: well, I mean, that's a good question. I think that. You know, again, when I had this original idea for the website, you know, again, part of my idea was that uh, the way that a lot of uh, left liberals uh, could talk and and about their politics could be very alienating to normal, you know, regular people, to normies. And um, I wanted a publication that would kind of go beyond um, the way that... uh, Leftism has this very academic uh, side to it and um, very, you know, a lot of condemnation, a lot of call out culture kind of thing. And, you know, I think Edwin had that. uh, He agreed with me on that. But um, what this, the, the compact, it seems a little bit more on this new right that a lot of people have been talking about you know, um, the Josh Hawley, right? The, you know, whatever Ted Cruz is becoming, um, the sort of traditional Catholic uh, fusion, like sort of more um, conservative socially and economically uh, more left. That is sort of the idea. Now, is that what compact looks like right now? I mean, it's day one. We'll give it some time, but um, that I think I think that's generally what they're trying to get at.
3: Okay. My my other question is, why do you think Barry Weiss wasn't invited to join this <laughs> magazine?
0: I mean, I don't. Know, more I, I mean, I don't feel like I have any understanding of of who who was or or, or why they were. Right. I mean, like like I don't I I don't. Like the idea that Adrian Vermeule um who who once you know, whose whose uh whose overwhelming ideology is like, you know, using, you know, the power of the state and conservative judiciary to impose family and church and tradition on an unwilling populace, uh is is on the same bast head as uh as as Glenn Greenwald, you know, whose who's, who's overwhelming focus, you know, traditionally has been on civil liberties, uh, well, is, it, it I, is very hard I, for me to understand.
2: I will say in that way, it kind of reminds me a little bit more of the New York Times opinion page, but for more like outsider thinkers, because, you know, the New York Times has um, – very socially conservative, very much uh, right-wingers, and then a lot of uh, left and, and liberal voices. I mean, more, more liberal voices, obviously. But um, I think it's it's a range that, you know, they're trying to do kind of this big tent thing, but it's a little inc- incoherent. But it seems like that's what they're kind of going for, is like almost like a New York Times uh, op-ed page.
0: Yeah, and, and that would almost make sense to me if... Uh if it was just like you know, this is not a ideological project, you know, we we just wanna like bring a range of interesting voices to you know, to like to just hash it out here and you know, fight with each other. Like, you know, which is you know, which is very roughly what um I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't like ideological threads that tend to be in common, you know, between New York Times columnists or you know, or you know there aren't really important things that are left out or whatever, but I mean that's like roughly what the New York Times is going for, or like any sort of regular newspaper like that that has a op ed page where you know they might have a certain bias in who they tend to invite or whatever, but at least nominally, the idea is is it's kind of a neutral forum you know like but but this this doesn't quite seem to be that, which is what makes it confusing
2: well, and I'd also say. And maybe I haven't read the right piece. I don't think that Bar- Barry Weiss is a great writer, n- you know, nor someone like Brett Stevens. <laughs> and and
0: certainly yeah, with you on that.
2: And I do think yeah. that some of the people that Compact has uh, are really good writers. Like in fact, you know, with the Bellows I commissioned Sam Chris, and Sam Chris is writing uh, for this website. And I think he's a fantastic writer. So I think maybe a little bit of the idea is have a more. Um, Highbrow intellectual uh, kind of um, edge to it. Uh, maybe I'm giving them too much credit. I don't know, but that's sort of what I'm thinking.
0: No, I think I think there is probably I think there is probably some of that. I've been just looking at the pattern of the names. That makes that makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it's just it's just a slightly confusing thing because you have the sort of ultra Catholic reactionary crew. Uh, you know, Amari Vermule, Deneen, and, um, and you've got, um, and and you've got like a certain kinds of left or post left, you know, like voices on there. And it's, and, and I, I think the thing that especially makes it seem weird to me is not even so much the combination, but the fact that it's uh, like really that note to the readers, right? Because like, you know, that there is like an announced program there. Right. That they say our editorial choices will be shaped by, you know, this is our this is our agenda. Right. And that, you know, again, maybe it's just like those three sort of founder editors at the top of the masthead who are speaking for themselves, in which case it's you know not as incoherent. So you don't have to say like, oh, this is how slavely fits into that or, you know, this is this is how Glenn Greenwald fits in or, you know, Ashley Frowley. Uh, but, um, you know, but, but that's even with the three of them, I mean, it's, it's just a very weird thing because like, that's the, that's the thing. It's not just that you have a magazine with some like left wingers and some right wingers and some post left weirdos in it and all that. Like, that's fine. Right. You know, it's just, it's more that you have a magazine with all of those. And even the sort of three people in the core group, there seems to be a certain assortment of those things. And they're like announcing it as a as a shared political project i mean that's that that's really where i get off board and what i what i think they share
2: is a hatred for a, a lot of the left and the uh, and liberals and so i'll be interested to see what they have to push forward as like here is the project we want to build this is what we uh the policies that we want to see not just hating whatever democratic party does you know uh to have an actual vision that is what i'm
0: skeptical about yeah no exactly and and i think that it's and that's what i'd honestly be most skeptical about how much we're going to see of right because it's like are you actually going to be talking about policy in here at all right like are you going to be talking about the things that you want to happen politically and then and then how you you know and then how they might be brought about right like like either policy goals and or, you know, strategy, uh, or are you going to be just sort of sounding off on, you know, general political cultural trends in a vague way? And what I've seen so far tends to be tilted pretty solidly towards the second second one, which is also like, you know, when you're talking about Edwin and how he sees or has seen, I guess he's disowned the term since, but you know, that kind of post left project like it like the post last seems to be as far as i could tell it's like almost nothing but sort of sounding off on general cultural political trends without ever quite saying like you know here are the things that i advocate you know here's how they would work you know here's how i here's how i hope to achieve them you know which which to my mind is where like you know actual politics live but um
2: yeah listen i i would be you know cool with reading a 1500 word uh, smart piece on Dave Chappelle, or sure,
0: uh,
2: you know. But you know, at the end of the day, you can get that elsewhere. And um, what, what if you're going to talk about this strong social democratic state with a sort of social conservative bent? What what does that actually look like?
0: Yeah, and I like exactly. that's clear. Exactly.
3: I, yeah. I have one one more Joe question. But I do, do want to say I don't have much faith in these guys, considering when I tried Googling contact mag, it turns out there's a neo-Nazi magazine that's <laughs> already got that name. It has probably got more readers right now than they do. But my question is, uh, who do you think is going to be the first ones to distance themselves? Because my money's on Glenn.
0: <laughs> well, no comment on that. Uh, let me... Uh... <laughs> All right.
3: All right. Thank you for your guys' time. I appreciate it. All
0: right. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, we do have one last call, if it's, if it's quick. Uh, Jack?
2: Hi, Ben. Um, I was just wondering if, you know, like, you think there's any potential value in this project? And, you know, if, it, if there is, what would it actually look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think Ryan said some of this earlier, but but I would just I would just kind of like the parts of it that I would kind of circle and, and co-sign onto would be I think if part of what they do ends up, ends up being you know focusing on a robust defense of free speech, I think that's useful and, and there's some value to that just because it's something that you know I, I'm I'm for pushing that you know wherever it could be pushed and uh, kind of even like what we were just saying in a very critical mode earlier, but like if they If they do actually start to articulate, like, not just on this level of sort of airy generalizations and maybe, like, well-written and kind of smart, but, like, very nonspecific articles about cultural political trends, uh, but, like, if they actually started to articulate, like, on a policy level, like, what that strong social democratic state that opposed, you know... Oppose libertarian attacks on, you know, traditional religious communities, blah, blah, blah. Like if they actually started to articulate in policy terms, what that would look like and like make arguments for like the specific, uh, social changes they want and how they would work and all that stuff, then I wouldn't agree with it. Right. For reasons that we were talking about earlier, I would, I would, I would really, you know, that's, that's not at all my vision for society, but, um, but I think that there would, I think there would be some value just in having that spelled out. So like, so, so everybody else could like productively argue about
2: it. And um, I'd say that, you know, there should be an expansion of ideas that, you know, we can, that, that can be in the discourse. I mean, I feel like that, especially in the last five years, there's a bunch of topics and there's a bunch of, of talk that has been, um, you know, uh, repressed. And while I disagree with a lot of like independence of patriarchy, I mm-hmm. admire that the fact that it exists and people can debate it. Uh, we should allow a greater range of ideas to be talked about. That's part of what a, a healthy culture of free speech is. And so, you know, if there's certain parts of the discourse, I mean, I would love a good piece on Uh, what it means to be in masks perpetually, uh, you know, in the COVID era. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is certain ideas that you, you know, it's hard to talk about in certain journalist circles where, you know, it'd be nice to have uh, more open discourse. So if they go that way, you know, again, I can disagree with, a third, fifty percent, seventy percent of what they say. But if they have, right. you know, some interesting ideas, I'd be, I'd love
0: to hear them. Yeah. No. Exactly. I, I think that's I think that's very well said. Uh, certainly sign on to that. But um, in any case, we will see we will see what they they produce and and if some of my cynicism is justified or you know if uh, actually my guess is that they'll that there'll be a good like you know. 20% of what they put out that'll be interested and worth reading, but also a lot of these initial critical impressions are going to be, uh, be borne out by what most of it's like, but one way or the other uh, we will see uh, my uh, cat Shabazz suddenly has a lot to say about this, so um, <laughs> I will uh, uh, but meanwhile uh, let's uh, let's sign off for today and uh, and everybody should go read Ryan and Jackman.
2: Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. All right. It's good to Thanks be Thanks, you too.